Welcome to the College Park Church of Christ Sermon Series Podcast. This sermon was recorded at the College Park Church of Christ in the Conroe Porter area. Join us for worship on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and Wednesday at 7 p.m. Thanks for studying the Word of God with us. This morning's sermon, I'm certainly passionate about it, but that's also the one that my wife, every time I ask her, says that's the one you need to preach. Um, This afternoon's, however, is one that was a huge learning opportunity for me. And it was from a time that I was in a pretty dark place. And you may see some of that in, in the discussion of the afternoon. But in my discussions with, with some of the members here, it seems like things are going really well. And I praise God for that. I'm, I'm so happy for this congregation that things are going well. And so this afternoon, I'm just going to say, that's wonderful, but be careful. Because when things are going really, really well is also a time that Satan is really good at opening pre-existing cracks. We see that in the New Testament. As the church in its infancy, Satan puts several attacks on the church. Sometimes it's an attack from outside and we call that persecution. And sometimes it's an attack from the inside where Maybe they're, they're taking some pre-existing conditions or differences and Satan starts to try to widen those gaps. We see that in Acts chapter 6 whenever there's already some dispute between the Jews and Gentiles and they use the, those differences to try to separate the congregation and cause problems. We see other instances where particular people are proud or boastful and they cause problems in a congregation. And so, again, I'm going to say I'm so thankful and, and glory to God that Things are going well here, but be careful. Because that's the time when Satan can really try to nose his way in. And he knows when things are going well, and he knows how to take advantage of situations that might hinder the work. And something that I have reflected on quite a bit is how unmet expectations can impact the way that people think and the work that goes on in a congregation. And I believe that unmet expectations are one of the leading causes for the controversy that we may have. You look at a lot of marriages that are having problems. A lot of it can be boiled down to unmet expectations. Whenever you're having personal conflict with a brother or sister in Christ, a lot of it can be boiled down to unmet expectations. And the list just goes on and on, but the common denominator is unmet expectations. And it can have a tremendous impact And we're going to begin in James chapter 4 this afternoon where James says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desire for pleasure? That war in your members you lost and you do not have. You murder and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. James asks a very simple question as he starts this chapter out. Why do we fight? Why do we have dissensions among us? And the simple answer is because we aren't getting what we want. Our desires, our expectations aren't being met. And what this leads to are feelings of failure, feelings of self-pity, frustration, anger, bitterness, resentment. And the result of those things is it can bring about mental health issues such as depression or anxiety. But in general, it breaks relationships and it hinders works. So be careful. 
And I want you to think about whether or not unmet expectations have caused a problem in your life. Think about your marriage. Think about the relationships that you have with people at work. Think about the church here. Some of you know me. Some of you know me for a long time. Um, it has been said that I'm someone who has too high of expectations. And that doesn't just go for expectations for myself. It's the expectations that I project onto others. Um, in fact, I had a situation, and it's one of the things that got me thinking about this, where after my mom passed away, the first series of holidays... Um, they were hard. That first Thanksgiving, that first Christmas, it was only a few months after and it was hard. And I remember thinking, I need my brother there. My brother's been my best friend. We shared a room for 16 years. And he told me, before the holidays even started, he works out in West Texas as a cotton gin manager. They run cotton from October to end of January. That's when he works 20 hours a day. And he told me, he said, Jeffrey, I'm not going to be able to be there for the holidays. And I said, okay. But it didn't click. Because when Thanksgiving came and he wasn't there, I was mad. Whenever Christmas came and went, I was mad. And it started to develop in me some of the feelings I've talked about of bitterness and resentment. And he had set the expectation on the front end. I just didn't like the expectation. And I had a higher expectation for him. And I said, I needed my brother there. And about February-ish, I had to come and I had to reconcile with him because the bitterness had grown so deep in my heart towards him. And he had told me up front that he wasn't even going to be there. But that's the way that things can work and bitterness can ensue because I don't like the answer and I've set expectations for other people that maybe are unattainable, maybe they're not, but the reality of it is, is that those my expectations aren't being met and so it can cause a lot of problems in my life. And I think that if you're likely honest with yourself, you may have seen something like that happening in your life from time to time. And so this evening I would like to share with you a biblical narrative which I believe communicates some great lessons about unmet expectations and self-pity and pride that can all culminate in the hindering of the work and problems in someone's life. And we're going to begin by looking at a man named Elijah. Elijah was a prophet of God during the divided kingdom. And because of some of the miracles that he did, he was a very well-known prophet. He was able to have discussions with kings. He told a king that it wasn't going to rain for three years, and the king got very upset with him. He was known throughout the land. That king, his name was Ahab, and Ahab, it tells us, is one of the most evil kings in the history of Israel. He married a, name, a man named Jezebel. And if you're unfamiliar with who Jezebel was, there's a reason that we don't generally find young ladies named Jezebel. Because she wasn't a very good woman. In fact, she was one of the reasons that Ahab sacrificed to the false gods of Asherah and Baal. And she was kind of leading the charge on that. And in 1 Kings chapter 17, 
it tells us, verse 16, it says that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all of the kings of Israel who were before him. That just gives you a snapshot of the type of king that Elijah is dealing with and the state of the nation at the time that Elijah was trying to get people to turn back to God. And in 1 Kings chapter 17, the chapter begins recording what Elijah said to King Ahab. It says, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, except at my word. And after Elijah delivered delivered this message to King Ahab, God told him to get out of there. And he fled and he went to the brook Kareth. And God told him to stay there. And during this drought of the land, God was going to sustain him. And He did. And after the brook Kareth dried up, God told Elijah to go a little bit further to a place called Sidon. And he met a, a lady and her son in Sidon. And it's there that you see a miracle of sustaining her son, her, and Elijah all together during this famine. But there came a point when the widow's son died. And Elijah is able to raise that child from the dead. Very powerful miracle. Doesn't happen just a lot, right? We talked about that a little bit this morning. There's a miraculous nature associated with that. But that's the experience that Elijah had with God, is being able to do things like raise people from the dead. It's not going to rain for three years. As you move into 1 Kings chapter 18... The chapter begins with the Lord telling Elijah to go back to Israel and talk to King Ahab. And after that, he's going to make it rain in the land again. And this chapter tells us that Jezebel, Ahab's wife, while Elijah was gone, slaughtered all the prophets of the Lord. Now we are given some information that a few prophets were sustained by Obadiah, but for the most part, she slaughtered the majority of those prophets. And when Elijah presented himself to King Ahab, this is what King Ahab says to him. Is that you, O troubler of Israel? It hasn't rained in years. And in King Ahab's mind, it's all Elijah's fault. You're the troubler of Israel. But I want you to notice that Elijah's answer cuts to the heart of the issue. He says, I've not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have. And that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal, the 450 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So he, he recognizes that Jezebel, that Ahab, that they are all very active in worshiping Baal and Asherah. He says, this is the reason that it hasn't landed. If this has been a warning from God, he says, but this is what we're going to do. is We're going to set up this scenario where it is the one singular prophet of God up against 900 false prophets of false gods. And whenever that situation is set up, Elijah tells the people why this is happening. Because they've chosen not to devote themselves to the true God, but rather to devote themselves to serving false gods. And this is what he says. He says, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. And what they were doing is they were kind of wishy-washy, but they were also very devoted to Baal, it seems like. And so he says, we're going to have a showdown here. And he sets this showdown up where he's going to go up against the prophets of Baal. And what they do is they start sacrificing. They have their bull 
on the idol and the kind of the terms and the conditions of the showdown is whoever God burns up that sacrifice is the winner. And that's who the people are going to go to. And so these prophets, although they start crying to God, they start at noon and they, they just keep going and they keep going and keep going. And at about noontime, Elijah kind of mocks them a little bit. He pokes at him when he says that, you know, maybe he's asleep. He's gone. And it says that there was no voice, that there was no answer, that no one paid attention is what was going on here in this showdown for the prophets of Baal. But then whenever it was Elijah's turn, what he does is he not only repairs the altar, he puts the bull on the altar, but then he digs a massive trench around the sacrificial area. And he tells them, I want you to go fill up a bunch of pots of water and dump it on that sacrifice. Dump it on the bull. Dump it on the altar to the point that that water is flowing down and it fills up that trench and it's just completely saturated. And then he prays to God. And his prayer is that this would show the people who the one true and living God is. And that it would bring these people back to God through this display of power. And his God sent fire down that consumed the sacrifice, that consumed the altar, that consumed the dust on the ground, and evaporated the water all around, including it in the ditch. A miraculous work of power. And this is what the people proclaimed in result of that. The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And you start to see kind of the expectations of Elijah coming to fruition where the people are turning back to God. His prayers are being answered. And you can just imagine how, how good he's feeling right now. Things are great. People are praising God because of this. And then he takes King Ahab to the top of Mount Carmel and he has yet another display of God's power where he then calls upon God and God makes it rain. And at this point, Ahab seems to be a pretty good fan of Elijah. He's pretty happy with Elijah right now. And at chapter, 10, chapter 18 ends on a high note. We have Elijah running into the entrance ahead of King Ahab and it's just a good thing. But then we get to chapter 19. And the narrative shifts rather suddenly because when Ahab tells Jezebel what had happened, and a detail that I missed, that I did not include in this, and I apologize, is that after God consumed that sacrifice with fire, Elijah had the prophets of Baal captured and executed. Now you think about the political dynamics going on here. You've got Jezebel who loves the prophets of Baal and Asherah, has been devoted to these false gods, and now Elijah has come in and utterly humiliated them and then executed them. And she says, let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Her response to this whole showdown is, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to make sure that you suffer and die. And after that threat, Elijah ran for his life. He went and he sat under a broom tree and he prayed that he would just die. He said, God, it's enough. Take my life. I'm no better than my father's. Very dramatic shift from what we get at the very end of chapter 18, isn't it? 
He goes from being high on life at the top of the Mount Carmel to now under a broom tree saying, I just want to die. What we see here is an extreme amount of emotion, of fear. And he wants to die because he feels like he's failed. What he wanted was for a whole nation turn. And a lot of people did. King Ahab seemed to to be on board a little bit, but one person, Jezebel, says, no, I'm going to kill you. And it sends him for a loop. And now he says, I'm not even better than my fathers. And what he means by that is he, I think he saw them as failures as well. All of these prophets before him had tried to get Israel to turn back to the one true and living God. And obviously it hadn't worked because all of them are still worshiping Baal and, and Asherah and all these people. He says, I'm no better than them. I can't do anything either. I thought I was on a good track, but now it's just turned back to nothing. And after that interaction with God under that broom tree, God sends an angel to Elijah and he says, arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. Now, there's a joke in here about whenever you're feeling bad that you just need something to eat and a nap. And I'm not going to make that joke. But that's what he tells Elijah to do. He says, you need to get something to eat, you need to take a nap, and you need to get on the road because I'm about to take you on a long journey. And that journey lasts about 40 days. And whenever he gets to where he's going... God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And what we hear from Elijah is this story that seems to be somewhat rehearsed in his mind because he says it multiple times. He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek my life, seek to take my life. Don't you feel bad for him? He has been so zealous for God. He has done what God has told him to do. Everyone else has turned against God. All the other prophets have have either been killed or turned away from God. And I'm sitting here and I'm doing the work and I'm the only one doing the work. And now, because it's not going the way that I want it to, I just want to die. Doesn't that sound terrible? Don't you feel bad for him? And yet again, I believe we see some picture into the darkness of the way that minds can work whenever unmet expectations are there. It's hard. You feel like a failure. You feel like you're the only one left doing anything. And there comes a point when you're just like, you know what, I'm done. I'm tired of this. Why am I doing this? You ever felt like that? Because I have. Ever looked around and felt alone? Felt like you weren't appreciated? Felt like you were failing? And then God speaks to Elijah again and he tells him, Go outside of the cave and I want you to listen to what happens. It says, Behold, the Lord passed by and a great strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks into pieces before the Lord. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. 
And suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, after everything Elijah had gone through, how would you have expected God to reveal himself to Elijah? I mean, let's think about this. This is the man who had raised a kid from the dead. This is a man who told a king that it's not going to rain for three years, and it didn't. This is a man who took on 450 false prophets and came out on top and then executed them. God had showed Himself to Elijah in many powerful ways over the course of Elijah's work. And so in thinking about the way that he interacted with Elijah here, you would have thought that it would have been in the great wind that tore the rocks down. And I'm picturing, I'm from Oklahoma, so I think in terms of tornadoes. You guys are in Houston, so you may think of hurricanes. But I'm thinking great and powerful winds that are able to destroy things, but it says that God wasn't in that work. The earth-shattering earthquake. But God wasn't there. The fire. I mean, I could definitely see the fire based on the fire consuming the sacrifice and that, that consumption of everything around. That would have been ironic, right? That would have been consistent, right? But He wasn't there either. He was in a very tender voice. And that's what brought him out of the cave. That's where he saw God. And God's question is yet again, what are you doing here? And he gives the exact same rehearsed answer. I've been working hard. I'm zealous. But I'm the only one left and I just want to die. And what's interesting about this interaction, it is so much different than what Elijah had experienced. I believe it was so much different than what he expected but it's almost like God, what God knew that Elijah needed was he didn't need to see a massive demonstration of power. He needed a gentle father's touch to help pull him out of that cave of fear and self-pity and pride. But what God did is he gave Elijah perspective. In verse 15, he says, Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Syria. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Mehelah. You shall anoint as a prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Haziel, Jehu will kill, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Here's the perspective that God gives Elijah. He says, I want you to take a step back and recognize that you're not the only one. There are so many other things going on around you that you have no clue what's going on. This work with Ahab and Jezebel isn't the only work that I want you to do. And whether or not you do the work that I need you to do is not going to change whether or not I'm a sovereign God and that my work is just going to fall flat on its face because you feel like you failed. He says, in fact, there's 7,000 people who haven't bent their, their knees to a false god. There are people willing to do the work And he says, guess what? 
These other people that I'm going to have you doing, they're going to be involved in working. If somebody doesn't get the job done, then somebody else is going to get the job done. If they don't get the job done, somebody else is going to get the job done. He says, I've got people that will do my work, and I will prosper. My will will prosper because I am sovereign. And so Elijah got back up and he went to work. That's what he did. And as we reflect on this narrative, how do you think that expectations impacted the storyline? Now, I'm going to just mention a few expectations. Number one, it appears that Elijah developed this expectation that God was going to complete the victory through him and him alone. You, know, you think about all the great things that he did, and now he's sitting there in his, in his thought process, I'm the only one doing anything, and yet I'm still failing. And it's as though, like, because he failed, that everything else was going to fail around him. It appears that Elijah expected King Ahab and Jezebel and all the others to repent and turn to God, and he expected this major multinational reformation that he was going to be the center of. And it appears that whenever that didn't happen, he saw himself as a failure, his work as a failure, and he just felt worthless. He's like, all they want to do is kill me anyway, so I might as well die. He had lost the perspective that God is sovereign. And that there's people and things going on that's bigger than just you. And it appears that one person who criticized or threatened him completely derailed him. Because think about it. All those people were saying, the Lord is God. The Lord is God. Ahab is welcoming back in the city. And one person criticizes him and he goes off the rails. Ever been there? Because I have. It appears that he had the expectation that while he was in the cave that God was going to show him himself as a mighty, powerful example. But that's not how God showed himself to him. It was in that small, still voice and that fatherly guidance that says, I need you to come out of that cave of self-pity. Now I want you to take some of these reflections and think about how some of your unmet expectations or maybe some of the expectations in general have impacted your life. Maybe they've caused you to feel feelings of anger or bitterness. Maybe you've been full of some resentment or self-pity. Maybe they've caused you to just shut down and feel like I'm done. Why am I trying anymore? Because every time I try, somebody says something. Maybe it's created division and strife. Maybe it's impacted your marriage. Maybe it's impacted the relationship with your kids. Maybe it's impacted the people that are sitting right here next to you. Unmet expectations tear people apart. And it cripples people. And it cripples congregations. And fortunately, there are safeguards from it. Having the proper perspective of yourself 
in relation to others and especially in relation to God is one of the main protective mechanisms against all of the problems that can come associated with unmet expectations. In James chapter 4 and verse 6, it says, He gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The main point that James is driving at here, and remember, we started out in the beginning of chapter 4 talking about why do people fight? Why are there wars among us? And just a few verses later, he's talking about how God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. And an instruction to resist the devil. The reality of it is that if we take a step back and we recognize who the Creator is, we recognize that He is an all-powerful God, then it helps us have a better perspective of who we are and what our work is and should be. And we can look at the response of David in the Psalms where David will, I mean, he'll go off. He will say some things to God, about God, that I hope I would never in my life dream of saying. And then it's like a switch flips. And he's like, But wait, you're God. And you are sovereign. And you are mighty. And you are merciful. And you are graceful. And you can do all of these things that I can't do. And he ends the psalm with praise. You see that over and over and over again with him. And it's pretty clear to see the point here. And that is that if we humble ourselves and submit ourselves to the Creator, we're going to have a more proper perspective that's going to protect us from the problems that come from unmet expectations. As he continues, it says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now, you boast in your arrogance. And he says, all such boasting is evil. And the instruction here is, don't boast about tomorrow, but rather submit to God's will. And that includes God's plan and His timeline. And this specifically relates to Elijah in the way that he went about his work doing the work and he had already expected what the end result was going to be and whenever it wasn't that way that he thought it was going to be, it completely shattered him. And it's very similar to this teaching right here of someone who makes a plan and they have the end expectation that a prophet is going to come. Not P-R-P-H or you know P-R-O-F-I-T, that type of prophet. That a prophet is going to come. And he says that's arrogance. To make these plans and expect that that's what's going to come out of it. How often do you expect certain things to happen as a result of your work? As a result of these actions? And you've already got it planned out in your mind. And it doesn't happen that way. As someone who has a plan A, B, C, D, and E for almost everything in his life and puts together key performance indicators, I have, I've already told you, I have way too many expectations in my mind. And I will tell you, the amount of time, the reason I have a plan A, B, C, and D, and E is because it never happens the way that I think it's going to happen. I think it rarely does. 
But whenever we consider the idea of doing church work that we plant and we water and that God gives the increase, how much do we emphasize what we are doing and we have this expectation of what the profit is actually going to be? And I'll use the example of door knocking. You know, I spent hours and hours and hours and I knocked thousands and thousands and thousands of doors and not a single person came to the meeting. Our expectation is that whenever we go and we knock all of these doors, that a certain thing is going to happen in response to to that. And whenever it doesn't happen, we get upset and we say, oh, well, well, that's not worth the time that we just spent on it. But you don't even realize that you spent five hours walking shoulder to shoulder with a brother in Christ getting to talk about things, and it solved some of the personal conflict that you had with that person. Maybe the elders paired you up that way for a reason, right? But we have this prophet in mind and whenever it doesn't happen, we just we get deflated and we say, well, our work's, our work's not worth it. But I want you to notice where James places the emphasis here. It's not on me and my planting and my watering. It's all based upon what the Lord wills. And it comes back to humility, knowing what our place is and being submissive to God and His will and His plans. In verse 11... Coming back a little bit, it says, Do you not speak evil of one another, brethren? He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? The instruction here is don't judge and speak evil of your brother. Well, again, the idea is putting yourself in the proper perspective. Now it's not necessarily in relation to God. We see that in this passage. But also putting yourself in the proper perspective alongside one of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Elijah had this perception that he was the only one faithful to God. And he was the only one doing the work. And you see the self-talk in his mind. I'm the only one. I'm the only one. I'm so zealous for God. I'm doing the work. And then here we are and it's not being profitable and I just want to die. I think that I may have that on the screen. I do. That's the the self-talk that he's doing there. You ever done that? You go on a walk, you go on a drive, and you start thinking, and by the time you end that walk or the drive, rather than it being a help, what you've developed in your mind is all the things that you have done that nobody appreciates about you. All the things that you have done that nobody helped you with. All the things that you asked somebody to get done and they didn't get done. And the laundry list just keeps going further and further. I'm the only one that doesn't, you know. Having good perspective makes self-talk a powerful tool of reflection, but whenever your perspective is bad, you end up like this. And it's just not worth it anymore. And so what we do is we start talking and thinking badly about our brethren, about our elders, But the question that's posed by James is, who are you? Again, similar to what God did to Job, he gave Job a tongue lashing. He says, who are you? Who are you? Where were you whenever I created all things? Can you explain to me all the inner workings of the universe? Obviously you can because you think that you can. James says, who are you? And it's again, it's a perspective statement. 
James frames us under the proper context that he puts us aside the one lawgiver. He says he's the one who's able to save and destroy. He's the one who set the standards. I'm not the lawgiver, and you aren't the lawgiver. And what we need to do is take a step back and see the big, peach, the big picture because who am I to assume the rudge of judge, jury, and executioner on my brother and then to talk badly about them because they didn't do what I thought they needed to do. They didn't meet my desire. They didn't meet my expectation. And so here we are. And again, we come back to this main point that we need to humble ourselves and see ourselves not only in the proper perspective with God, but also the proper perspective with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And any thought process and any perspective that leads you down the road to anything other than you need to humble yourself and have a better perspective in relation to God is a wrong perspective. I'm just going to be frank. And it's a dangerous perspective. Because what it leads to is speaking evil. Evil thoughts, evil words, self-pity, depression, and you're just done. And I'm saying this from experience. And so I'm glad things are going really well here at College Park. Praise God for that. But be careful. Because those thoughts can destroy people. And it can destroy a work. Because you forget about the love and the mercy and the blood that joined you together as family. And you become enemies in your mind with one another. They're dangerous. And they can impact your spiritual well-being. They can cause problems in your relationships and in your church. And we need to be able to manage our expectations in a way that recognize who we are before God and who we are before our brother. And if we're unwilling to do that, things won't go well for long. I have sat here and talked for a while and I've done it from experience. And I pray that if somebody needs to change their perspective this evening, that you'll have the courage to do that. It's not easy. For Job, it took a very close interaction with God where he ripped him up one side and down the other, and I don't want that for you. I would much rather God give you a gentle prodding to pull you out of that cave of self-pity and fear and depression and give you that perspective that you need to get back to work. And if there's someone here that we can help, let's go on this journey together. Have a seat on the front row and communicate your needs as we stand and sing the invitation song. Thanks for joining our sermon series podcast today. For more, check us out on YouTube or come worship with us on Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings.